Thanks, Leah. Again, as she mentioned, if this is your very first time, I just want to say welcome. Uh, maybe we haven't met yet. I'd love to meet you outside at the guest table as well. And just thank you for being with us. Uh, hopefully your Thanksgiving was restful. I know mine was very relaxing. I hung out a lot as well as ate a lot. So I hope that your combo was as good as mine. Uh, but Thanksgiving is a really, really fun time. Now, to kind of transition into something a little bit more serious you may or may not know about Thanksgiving, but Thanksgiving is actually a pretty violent time. Now, I don't say that to be funny or trite necessarily. It really is a pretty violent time. And I got to thinking, why is this? I mean, here's the, the reality, is that maybe like my family, your family or some of your family got up early or stayed up late, or got open on your computer to Amazon Prime and got ready for the deals to hit, like wherever you're at in that spectrum, uh, did you know that over the last 10 to 12 years, 11 people have died on Black Friday? 11 people. And I just checked this morning, over 117 people have been seriously injured on Black Friday. All of those numbers compile to something crazy happened on Black Friday. Now it's, it's crazy for us to think about here on the kind of Sunday after Thanksgiving, why would people who otherwise went to Best Buy to buy a new HDTV leave in a cop car? I mean, seriously, why is that? I mean, what about human nature makes someone do that? I mean, we're talking deaths of not just like customers trying to get a parking spot, we're talking salespeople security guards, policemen and women. I mean, and you kind of rack your brain if you're one of those families trying to wrestle through. Man, Black Friday was actually pretty grim. It was pretty fatal for some people. And I got to thinking, why is that? What is it about Black Friday? And there's actually a website you can go and look and it's quite sobering. One male shot, one male stabbed at Willowbrook Mall on Black Friday. Shirtless man uses belt as a whip outside of Vancouver, Black, I mean, women hurt during Stampede and South African Mall. I mean, you can go down this list on this website and it's like, oh my goodness. I thought this was just about like a new iPhone. Like it, this is incredibly serious, which is fascinating to me. And here's why I think that is. I'm not a sociologist, but here's my best guess. And I think all of us relate to this at a heart level, is that otherwise normal people who went to Black Friday showed up and became a product of their environment. Is that none of those people probably woke up that day saying I'd love to kind of leave in a cop car and ruin my family and ruin my life and lose my job and all of these different things and yet that's exactly what happened, why? And, and how does that happen? Otherwise normal people became a product of their environment and friends, if we were honest this morning, we know what that's like. Now you may not have had that encounter on a Black Friday and I'm hoping you never do, but we've all know what it's like to be in that environment in which we get swept into the current of things that otherwise we wouldn't normally do, otherwise things we wouldn't normally say, otherwise things we wouldn't normally spend money on that we just kind of get dragged along with the culture who is, is living against what Christ values and what his kingdom stands for. I mean, I think about the person who maybe you just had this encounter this last week. It's easy in a, in a kind of break room conversation. Maybe it's a dirty joke or gossip about a coworker or backbiting about a boss, but you get into that environment and you find yourself swept up in it. And, and things you otherwise wouldn't normally say, things you wouldn't otherwise normally think, start to go across your brain. 
and you get swept up and become a product of the environment. The same thing happens with people when it comes to alcohol. I mean, we live in Beer City, USA, which for some of you is like, that's why I moved here, idiot. Like, I, I don't know where you come uh, when it comes to that conversation, but here's what I know, is that otherwise normal people, when they get into a bar or a craft brewery or uh, with friends around a dinner room, dining room table, sometimes become a product of their environment. And they do things and say things and consume things they otherwise wouldn't. The same goes for people in school. Maybe you're on Thanksgiving break right now and you're like, praise the Lord, I don't ever wanna go back, but Monday is coming. It's in like a day and, and you're thinking about Monday already, but that means there are probably some projects or exams or tests that are about to come your way. And, and you and I both know that in a school environment, there's countless opportunity for you and I to shortcut the right thing. To get an A on an exam, but to do it the wrong way still makes it wrong. You think about cheating, you think about group projects, you think about discussion posts, whatever it is for you in your school environment. People often, even when it comes to school, become a product of that environment. And they do things and say things and worship things they otherwise wouldn't. And I just wanna ask why, but I know this is true for me spiritually as well. And we're talking about this season of being in a wilderness a tough place. Jesus goes to the wilderness. He's led by the Spirit into a hard place. Why is that? And what happens in the wilderness really determines the kind of person you are. But here's what I know is true for me spiritually, and this might be true for you as well, is that my wilderness often derails my worship. I'm not talking about worship to some other worldly thing. I'm talking about my worship to Jesus. It's that my wilderness, the tough seasons, the hard circumstances, the stressors, the tensions, the struggles, those things often have a way of derailing my worship and, and questioning my allegiance to the kingdom and, and fraying and tearing away at my surrender to Christ. And I wonder why is that? Why does that happen? And maybe that's true for you spiritually as well that when you're, that wilderness derails your worship, your life seems to drift in a direction that you know you don't want and you know that Jesus doesn't want. So the question is, is one that maybe we've wrestled with before, but I wanna come back to it as we look at the end of Matthew 4 that we'll study here in just one second. I wanna ask the question today, have we misunderstood worship? Have we misunderstood worship? Because if my wilderness often has a way of derailing worship, the truth is I probably don't really understand worship yet. That if it's circumstance or a tough environment or a hard season of life has a way of fraying at my allegiance to Jesus and tearing away from my day-to-day -day worship, and I'm not just talking about Sunday, I'm talking about Monday to Saturday. If it's tearing at my worship to Jesus, maybe there's a chance I've misunderstood what worship really is. And when it comes to Matthew 4, Jesus again and again guides us in the way of worship, even in the wilderness. So I wanna take you to Matthew 4 right now, and I wanna encourage you, man, if you've got a physical Bible, take that out, we're going to use it. If you've got a device you like to read along with, take that. If you've got something to take notes with and a pen, don't underestimate what God might say to you in this moment. And so in Matthew 4, we're picking up at the end of these series of tests. Three tests that Jesus encounters, and we'll unpack those in just a moment. But I wanna start reading in verse eight. So if you've got Matthew 4, verse eight, here's what it says. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain 
and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. Now what we're reading right here in Matthew 4 is the end of a series of three specific tests to Jesus' worship. And the first test we read, if you remember week one, a couple weeks ago, that week one, Jesus' provision, his idea of God as provider was being tested because the devil comes to him and says, hey man, I know you're about to do some food miracles. I know you're gonna multiply some bread. I mean, you could do that right now if you want, because I know you fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and as the beautiful scripture writer wrote, he was hungry. I mean, yes, that makes sense. Some of you are going through that prayer and fasting right now, and you've had some hunger pains this past week. Maybe you fasted from social media, and metaphorically, you're hungry and thirsty for social media. Wherever you're at on the spectrum, we know what it's like to be hungry and to want to provide for ourselves rather than trust God as provider. Jesus tempted with the same thing. Just like Israel's tested, as we talked about last Sunday in the wilderness, to, to kind of shortcut God as provider and to do it on their own. But Jesus succeeds the test. And in verse, and you keep going throughout the verses of Matthew 4, you read again, there's a second test. Devil brings him up to a high place near the temple and says, hey, if you jump off and, and the angels come and they, they save you, everyone is gonna know you're the Messiah. Because this was written about you thousands of years ago. And if you jump off and the angels save you, you're going to have an audience. There's going to be approval of people like you wouldn't believe. People are going to like you. People are going to want to be around you. People are going to want you to perform similar miracles for them. And it's the test of people's approval that we often identify with. We know what that's like. If you have social media, you live and breathe on that basis. So do I. But Jesus succeeds the test where often we as well as Israel failed. And so the devil ups the ante. And we know that from Jesus' life, and he knew that the cross was the final destination, that after his three years of earthly ministry, Jesus would come to this place of suffering, be tortured and crucified, be buried in a, in a man's grave, and then be raised again by the Father. But resurrection didn't happen without the cross. And Jesus knew that suffering and pain were going to be a part of his story. You know the gospels if you've read them and you see again and again, maybe in a small group right now, you're journeying through the gospels and you're seeing again and again Jesus be persecuted and harassed and chased out of towns and kind of in all these situations he is persecuted. And the devil's saying in the test, you could avoid that if you want. You can sidestep the cross skip the suffering and just become the king of this present world. I'll give it to you and all you have to do is bow down and worship me. To bow down and to bow at the face of Satan, the opposition, the adversary himself. And here's what's true about tests. You know this if you're in school, you know this if you're in education or a teacher or maybe you're in some kind of environment which tests are a regular part of your work. Tests reveal who you truly are and what you truly believe and what you truly know for that matter, who you are, what you believe and what you know. And again and again, the devil is tempting Jesus, saying, what are you really? I mean, you know, if you like good fruit juice, the best fruit comes when you squeeze it the hardest. And that's true about our lives as well. When you squeeze us out, what really is inside starts to pour out. Sometimes that's really, really positive and good, 
But most of the times it's negative and it reveals something ugly about our sin. And when we're squeezed and the pressure's on in the wilderness, Satan comes to Jesus in a very similar way and tests reveal what we truly are. They reveal, reveal what we believe. I know this firsthand because I almost failed sophomore algebra. Now some of you are laughing and that's rude, but it's true, like I really did. Uh, I, I walked into class on my first day of advanced algebra. First disclaimer, I had no idea how I even got into advanced algebra. I barely uh, could make it out of addition. But then they put this formula on the screen my very first day and immediately a wave of terror and sheer panic coursed through my veins and I said, oh dear Lord, I'm in so much trouble. I'm never gonna pass this class. So I looked at that and said, man, I'm good with numbers. I can figure out the numbers part, but now they're adding letters. Like how cruel of a teacher would do that. And so I saw this formula and one of my very first nights before my first test, I knew this was coming up. I knew I didn't know the material. And I said, mom, you're a certified public accountant. You're obviously a math whiz. I need your help. You and the prayers of all the saints that I know. I need you to pray and intercede and I need you to sit with me and help me cram because I'm certainly going to fail this test. I know I'm gonna fail it. And so we sat down and my mom fed me chips and cheese, which was like my go-to snack in high school. She turned the AC on in the middle of winter just to keep me awake. All of these things she was doing to help me cram for this first algebra test. And so the day comes. And math is a cruel, a cruel master because what happened was I didn't have advanced algebra my first period. I didn't even have it my second period. I had it like fourth. It's after lunch. And so I had the entire morning for my stomach to be turning in knots and maybe trying to get all the information I could crammed into my brain. I'm, I'm taking other tests and trying to write out algebra formulas and just to remember some of the stuff that my mom and I had crammed the night before. And I finally get to that test. I sit down, my, my teacher kind of drops the test to the side of my desk and just kind of goes, <laughs> like he knows I'm gonna fail. <laughs> like he, he dropped it off, he's like, oh man, this is gonna be a doozy for John. Like he just knew it, he, he had some compassion. So I, I, I blazed through the test in about 3.5 minutes. Like I didn't know anything. I just like wrote down some letters and numbers and tried to piece it together. It took really long to write my name. And then I finally dropped it off. And it's a bad sign if you're bad at math when you drop your test off first. I'm just saying, like if you drop your test off first, there's chances are you did something wrong. And so I bring the test up, I drop it off, and I think he just looked at my name and just gave me a big F. Like it was just, I don't even have to look at this. He knew it was bad, it was wrong, and I failed. And I failed multiple tests throughout that class. But here's what's true about tests. They reveal who you really are and they reveal what you really know and what you believe. And the test for me showed over and over again, I didn't know the content. And I didn't really th think math was that important. And so I didn't really study that hard or really try to grasp the concepts. And so the same is true for Jesus in this story. The devil, Satan himself, is tempting back and forth to test Jesus' identity. We know this because if you have your Bibles, you saw it in verse nine. I want you to look with me there if you have it. This is what the devil tempts Jesus with. He says, all this I will give to you, all the kingdoms of the world, all the power you could ever want, all this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and say that next word with me. If you will bow down and worship me. Jesus retorts back in verse 10. Listen to what he says. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. 
Worship the Lord your God only and serve him alone. Worship and worship back and forth. See, our wilderness often derails our worship and Satan in this moment is trying to derail Jesus' worship to his heavenly father, to pull him away from what he knows is true and right. Jesus is not coming up with a new fancy quote here, by the way. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6.13, looking back to the people of Israel that were reminded again and again, do not put other gods before your one true God. Don't do it. Don't give your allegiance away to lesser gods, to idols. And Jesus is tempted with the exact same thing, to sidestep the cross, to get rid of pain and suffering. Now, I, I wanna throw a caveat in the middle of this teaching. I wanna just throw something out there that maybe you've thought about, maybe you've wrestled with, or maybe it never crossed your mind. As we've been reading through Matthew 4, again and again, we see this phrase come up. The devil, Satan, in verse one, the tempter. And you can look at that, and in our Western minds, here's what I think of. This is an old basilica painting, one of the first depictions of the devil. So here's Jesus in the, in the wilderness, and then the angels at the end. I often think about the devil as like that weird reptilian figure with a tail and wings. Maybe you think about him like a, a fiery guy with a butane torch of a trident. Like you may think about the devil that way, but this is one of the first artistic depictions of this scene we're reading. You can see the wilderness. He's sitting on the rocks. You see the temple. And then you see the high place in which we read about in this specific test that we're studying right now. And often when I think about the devil and I think about Satan, it's kind of like that. It's like, oh, it's like cute. Like they're rivals back and forth. Jesus and the devil just fighting it out, out in the wilderness. They're going at it. But that's not exactly the picture the scripture writers and even Matthew are painting right here. They don't really even give Satan a proper noun. Like I think about Satan as like a name. It's like oh, it's Jesus' name and then Satan's is his name. But Satan really could be better translated as the Satan standing for the adversary someone in opposition to God's good and true world, his justice, his righteousness, it stands in opposition. It's really much more mysterious and complex of a thing. Jesus doesn't even give him a, a, the dignity of being a person. But Satan being this complex and evil force that's at work in the wilderness, Jesus is staring at the face and listen to what he says in verse 10. Jesus said to him, this evil, mysterious, broken, sinful force that's in the wilderness with him, away from me, Satan. Away from me, adversary. Jesus looks, and again, I don't know all of your stories this morning. I don't even know kind of your background religiously. I don't know if this is your first time in a church. I don't even know if you've heard this story before. Here's what I know. Every single one of us has felt the damaging and the crippling effects of sin in our world. We know what brokenness looks like and feels like and, and sounds like and tastes like. We've been in situations in which sin has stared us in the face and we have lost, in which temptation has gripped our hearts and we've given in in which there was a potential to live above a certain standard to, to see, seek after God's best in which we settled for lesser gods. We know what that's like. We know what it's like to feel the injustice of abuse. We know what it's like to feel the pain and the tearing away of families through divorce 
and, and we know what it's like to worry and stress and have anxiety when it comes to money, when it comes to God providing. We know what it's like to, to deal with family, family members who consider or have committed suicide, who have thought and, and wrestled with depression for decades. We know what sin and injustice and brokenness looks like. And if I could put words to Matthew's words here, Jesus is staring at the face of Satan and staring at the face of evil and injustice and brokenness saying, get the hell out of here. He has the victory. He alone carries what we need. He alone is the answer to our sin problem. He alone is the one who, if you're a disciple, creates urgency within us to let other people know that is true. He is the one. And Jesus is staring at the face knowing that just years later, a young fisherman who's a little bit off base most of the time named Peter will test him with the same thing. He'll say, you said you're gonna die, Jesus. Peter kind of takes him to the side, trying to teach Jesus a lesson here. Maybe you've done that before. I'm gonna, God, I'm just gonna take you to the side for a second. I wanna tell you something. He takes Jesus to the side and Peter says, you, okay, I heard you say you're going to die. Are you sure you have to do that? Maybe you could sidestep that pain and suffering. Maybe you could still be king of the world, but you don't have to do it in like a painful or embarrassing or humiliating or suffering-laden way. Like you could just be the king and Messiah and we'll be fine with that. What does Jesus say to Peter if you know the story? Get behind me, Satan. Away from me, Satan. The same thing that he says to the Satan in this story. Because you don't have God's mind. You don't have God's plan in your view. You're not holding an eternal kingdom perspective here and you're missing the point. You're trying to tear at my worship. You're trying to tear away. You've misunderstood what it really means to worship. It's not to have power, it's to defer power. It's not to hold control, it's to be surrendered. It's not to keep your own agenda but to give your life up for a greater one. This is the truth of the gospel story. This is what Jesus is fighting against, even in the wilderness. See, here's what I think we most misunderstand about worship. Often we walk into a setting like this and worship feels like, man, sometimes I'm really emotionally engaged, so I'm gonna raise my hand for a verse. Or maybe it's, I'm gonna give today. Or maybe it's, I'm actually gonna show up to church. That's my act of worship. But worship is so much more. And Jesus in this test tells us, reveals to us this truth that your worship is a weapon. Our worship is a weapon. Our allegiance to Jesus and surrendered life to him is a weapon against the forces of evil and injustice in our world. It puts us on mission with a greater cause. We talk about this all the time, but when you think about zero lives and change, which is our vision and even our, our kind of clarion call as a church, if you don't have that alignment with Jesus, you will never succeed. If you don't have that kind of level of surrender and willingness to sacrifice for whatever he calls you to sacrifice, you will fail the test. Israel failed the test and we often wrestle with this test, but we misunderstand worship at its core. Worship is a weapon to fight back against the enemies of darkness, to repel the forces of selfishness in our world to push back against the, the brokenness and the sin that so easily entangles us and to say no to temptation because you're pursuing a greater thing. 
this is what it means to worship, and this is what it means to understand worship, that worship is a weapon. See, the devil primarily is twisting Jesus' destiny. He's twisting his worship. He's trying to get him to settle for something lesser than God's best for him in this story. But in verse 11, we read something interesting, and I often miss it when I read this story. Read with me if you see it. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Angels came and attended. This word has a lot to do with providing, nourishment. They came and they supported him. Maybe give him food or drink after the season of fasting. They came and they surrounded him and they, they were with him as he was victorious through these three tests. But look at the three tests. If you can think back in your brain over the last couple weeks, those tests. The first, Jesus denies bread. He succeeds in the test by denying food, by not providing for himself. What happens? He is fed supernaturally in verse 11. Second, Jesus doesn't jump off the portico. He doesn't improve, doesn't get the people's approval. He doesn't take the Messiah destiny into his own hands. And yet the angels do attend to him at the end of the story. Third, Jesus doesn't compromise. And in verse 12 of Matthew 4, what do we read? That Jesus withdraws to Galilee, leaves Nazareth, Nazareth, and begins to preach in verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. See, Jesus could have taken all of these situations into his own hands, but instead used scripture and his worship to the heavenly Father as a weapon. And Jesus succeeds where Israel and often where you and I have failed, by staying loyal and surrendered and given over to God's best for him, to given over to full and undivided worship to the one God who could actually fulfill all the things that the devil was trying to hand his way. Again and again we see that. So if you and I decide I'm, I'm with you, I don't want to fail the test. I, I want to be able to truly succeed when it comes to God's best for my life. There's two very, very simple things that you and I can start doing right now. You and I can leave this room doing two things. And the first is this, really believe that my wilderness, that your wilderness does not have to derail your worship. Believe that your wilderness does not have to derail your worship. Now it often wants to. And if we just give it over and live in it, maybe there's medical pain right now, maybe there's financial stresses, maybe there's relational breakdown, we could give in and become a product of those environments. But disciples of Jesus, we don't do that. We really believe that our wilderness can actually enhance in a way our worship and, and create new hearts within us and, and give us more resolve and strength and reliance on the Holy Spirit so that you and I can overcome the test and, and beat the temptation. The second thing you and I can do is to act as if that were true. Believe that our wilderness does not have to derail our worship and secondly, let's act like it actually is true. Let's act like we really are people that believe that. I'm in the middle right now of a test. My test is, is probably different than yours. Maybe yours, again, is physical, it's relational, it's got to do with money or a career thing. Right now, I'm in the test of wanting to fast track something I know God wants for me. And when Lindsay and I moved here, one of the most difficult things that we had to do was to give up our house. 
There was not one ounce of my body that said, give up this really nice house so you can go live in an apartment. <laughs> like there was just nothing in me. There was no spiritual desire as a part of that decision process. It was a total surrender thing. And right now, Lindsay and I are saving up a down payment because we want to buy a house. Now, here's what I know. There's two things at play. My desire for a house, which is way up here, but there's also my decision to be a good steward of God's resources, to be a generous person, to keep supporting the ministry of the Center Church, and all these other things that God has as priorities for my money. Now, I could fast track that, and I could fast track, I could get rid of this and fast track this desire and fast track this need. Get a house quicker, move in. I even kind of like yard work now. I mean, maybe that's because someone else does it, but I think I'll like it. Like when I get a house, like maybe someone else, maybe will help me out with that. But what I'm saying is there's parts about a house, whether it's property or a yard or all these things that if you have a house, you get. You get it. You understand what I'm saying. I could fast track that desire and stop being a good steward of God's resources. That's a test for me right now. And I don't know what your test is. Your test could have to do with infertility. Your test could have to do with a marriage. Your test could have to do with singleness and the discontent that you feel. Your test right now could have to do with money, could have to do with a house or, or that same thing that we're walking through. Your test could have to do with a job or career move that you want, but you know it's not God's timing or the right thing for you. Whatever your test could be, believe that that wilderness and that testing season don't have to define your worship and act as if that were true. Because here's what I know. When we do this, we are never more in alignment with what God wants for us than when we do that. When we live as if that were true, we will orient, even indirectly, our lives in that way. When we really believe that that is true and we act as if it was true. And that's why we've, we've done a lot of work. If you walked in this morning, you received a prayer and fasting guide. Some of you have been journeying with us on Facebook or other environments, maybe in person, of prayer and fasting. Some of you fasted from social media last week, like I did, and it was way harder than I thought. Uh, but all those seasons are built in for you as a guide so that you and I can really practice that. Because here's what I know, the most frustrating thing we ever do in a church is to say you should do something and give you no tools to do it. So we wanna actually help empower you to live it out. So if you didn't get a guide, grab one of those guides on their way. Maybe you drop your next steps card and you grab it on the way out. But don't miss out on what God wants to do by missing out on one of those guides. Use your worship as a weapon. That doesn't stop on a Sunday morning, by the way. I know we all know that. But let your Monday be defined by your worship. Let your Tuesday board meeting be defined by your worship. Let your Wednesday conversation on the way to your kids' hockey practice be an act of worship. Let your Thursday conversation with your spouse that maybe needed to already have happened, let that be worship. As you give this week, maybe online or support a charity, whatever you do on Friday, let that be worship. When you pray for someone or send them an encouraging text on Saturday, let that be worship. And when you come back on Sunday, let this be worship. Let your worship be a weapon. Don't be content with the injustice and the sin and the temptation and the brokenness that you experience. Fight back with the Holy Spirit's help. 
Use your worship as a weapon. I'd love to pray for us as we conclude this morning. And I'm gonna invite you to close your eyes just as a way to focus this morning, just as a way to really lock in to see, God, what are you saying to me? But here's what I know, that there's some of us in the room right now who have a very real wilderness season in front of us. Maybe we're in it, maybe it's starting, and there's difficult circumstances around us that are really wanting to derail our worship. And we need the Spirit's help, His strength, His courage, His bravery to stand up against it in the middle of that season. We just need His help. And I would love to pray right now specifically for you. If you know that's my struggle, I've got something that's just too big for me and God, I need you to step in. If that's you, I'd invite you just to throw your hand up real quick because I wanna pray specifically for you in this time. If that's you, just throw it up real quick. Yeah, thank you, thank you. You can put those back down. I also know that today, maybe as we've sung and as we've worshiped and as you've studied and heard and, and hopefully really understood God's word, you know that your next step is to surrender your life to Jesus and to make a commitment of faith saying, I, I have lived my own way. I've lived with the brokenness of my own sin. I've lived maybe even at the hands of others and, and I just wanna be free and I wanna know what this life is like that you're talking about. I wanna live a life surrendered to Jesus. I would encourage you if that is you, just to throw your hand up real quick so I can pray specifically for you this morning and we can celebrate with you. If that's you and you're saying, I needed to jump over the line, I need to make a decision for Jesus today, just to slowly raise your hand up so we can pray for you this morning. Awesome. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that in your presence there's freedom. In your presence that despite what we bring in, despite our tests, despite whatever wilderness season we're in the middle of, you are with us and you wanna set us free from our past, from the pain of the present, from the fear of the future, the worry and the anxiety that brings. God, I thank you that you wanna set us free. So God, our prayer is that right now, no matter where we're at on the spectrum, whether we know that a decision for Christ is what we need to do, or we know that there's a battle and a struggle that's just too big for us and we need you to intervene, God, we're asking for more of your presence and more of your freedom in our life today. So God, thank you for what you are doing. Thank you for the kind of people we're becoming in Christ. And we ask that you'd give us hearts that are sensitive and soft to what you want to say to us this week as we worship you and fight back the enemy. We love you. We pray it in Jesus' strong and his powerful name. Amen. Amen. Church, I'm going to invite you to stand.